If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to where Pastor Peter read just a little bit ago out of 1 Samuel chapter 17. This uh, passage that is very familiar to most, if you have never been in church, if you didn't grow up as a little kid in church, you still have heard something referred to in your life, no doubt, about David and Goliath. That is the story that we're talking about today and that we're looking at as we consider the idea of being strong and courageous in our lives. And you know, we're going to have situations that are going to come to us where we're going to have the opportunity to bow away and to cower and to say, I'm not going to be able to do this. I don't think I can do this. This isn't going to work. And we're going to have the opportunity in those moments to say, nope, I'm going to step up. I'm going to allow God to minister in me. I'm going to allow God to strengthen me. And through Christ, I can do everything that he calls me to do. So David, instead of looking at Goliath as an intimidator, he looked at him as a target too big to miss. Your fear, your worry, your stress, that thing that's on your mind today, maybe a target too big to miss. It kept you up a little while last night. It's caused you to not eat as much or to eat way more than you should. It's been something that's been a stressor in your life, and here you are today sitting in this service and you're thinking about whatever that thing is that's in your life. Will you deal with it, or will you just go ahead and, and let it dominate your life? Robert Morgan, a writer, a minister, he said this, it's time for you to wage war on worry with the weapons provided by God's unfailing Word. Based on Scripture, you can live more, worry less, give each day a happier turn. You can bury worry before worries bury you. And this was a man whose wife was wheelchair-bound, writing this. He knew what he was talking about. So today I want to look at four keys in this passage here today that show us how to unlock the mystery of defeating our giants as we live a strong and a courageous life. When I met up with Tom Beckham, he was a fine fellow that was a counselor at a youth camp. He was one of the workers that was there to help everybody else out. He was a member of the leadership team and he was a great guy. Then I moved to Kansas City, and I ended up going into ministry while living there in Overland Park, Kansas, and, and it was a wonderful opportunity that I had. It was a great start out. Tom was a principal of a Christian school, and I used to go to his office, not as a, a troubled child, because I was already out of that range of school. I had moved on, and I used to visit with him, and he would give me perspective on life. He had grown up on a farm, and he had grown up seeing how the other side of the world lives, you know, and I had not grown up on a farm, and he, he had a different perspective of life, and so he would share ideas with me and concepts with me, and when I would get a little worked up about life, he was there to just be a friend and kind of calm me down. Tom had a situation in life that was a blood disorder. He was uh, suffering from hemophilia. He was having to get blood transfusions uh, periodically when his counts would not be right, and so God chose not to heal him but he had to deal with this. Well, he got a transfusion, and then he started feeling a little bit off. They didn't know what was going on for sure, and it was in the early days when we were just learning about AIDS in the United States. We didn't know a whole lot about it. We didn't know how it worked and how it was really transmitted, maybe. So, unfortunately, he had gotten a tainted uh, transfusion, and he developed AIDS. His brother Butch did also. He had the same problem. Wonderful men of God, wonderful people, uh, influencers, but I watched that man day after day come to work. He would not complain. He didn't complain. He knew he was going to die. 
We had no cure, no medicine to delay the virus. Nothing. He knew he had that over him. I would go over to his house. His wife, Terry, was there and his three kids, two of them in my youth group. And I would, I would visit with them. And I would go over to the house time after time. And then I remember the Sunday night that he passed away. I was at the hospital with his wife, Terry, and with one of her friends that was there, a lady that had stood by her so kindly. And I remember as a young kid minister, I got ready to leave, and I'm like, I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go now. I was going to go be with Tom's parents. They were elderly, and they lived on the other side of Overland Park, so I was going to visit with them, be with them whenever the inevitable happened. And uh, I forgot to pray. Did you ever go see somebody and forget to pray? <laughs> that you should stop and pray for? Uh, I was over with my wife at Mary Lou's house the other night. Mike passed away recently, and we were getting ready to leave, and as we were about ready to leave the door, I said, oh, we didn't pray. <laughs> we need to pray. You know, you always want to invite God into the situation. So I went in and prayed. No great miracle happened, but I went back and I said to his wife, Terry, I said, I need to pray. I went ahead and prayed. Tom passed away after a little while. They had one of the longest funeral processions ever to go out there into the Kansas City, Missouri side over there to a beautiful cemetery not far from where the Chiefs play football. And, uh, and so it was just uh, an incredible funeral service. And after that funeral, I still would go over and, and of course, and visit with his kids. They're, I was a youth pastor now. And uh, they were part of my youth group. And so I would go over and see them. Tom was a great inspiration. And he absolutely taught me in no uncertain terms early on how you face your giant, how you do not let something overwhelm you, even if it looks like all the odds are against you. I watched in the church. I grew up with a man named Gene Taylor. Gene was a wonderful man. He and his wife had, had four children. And then they had a fifth. Darren was his name. He was a little guy. Darren didn't develop well, and after some months uh, of life and their best efforts and the doctors doing all they could, he didn't live. He died. I still remember when my mother told me that. I was in high school then, and I was like, wow. Went to church, had a funeral. A bit overwhelming. See a little baby in a casket. That's, that's pretty, pretty alarming. It's not supposed to be that way. But life happens death happens too. And I thought to myself, will they still come to church? Are they going to be okay? Let me tell you something. They'd come to church every Sunday before that, every Wednesday night, every Sunday night. We used to have those three, you know. They came every one of those. And then Mary, his wife, she got sick with cancer. Pam and I went to visit her in the hospital one day. And it was like, oh my goodness, she's not going to make it. And she didn't. I remember getting to the, to the church and the funeral casket up there. They had the box open. Mary was there. Gene and his family sitting on the front row. They wanted to be there as long as they could with her. They loved her. She loved them. She taught me in little kids uh, church and had been a teacher for a number of years. She was a wonderful lady, knew God well. She passed. And here they are at the funeral. And I wondered to myself, will they still come to church? What would you do? God's supposed to let this happen? Your child, now your wife? A target too big to miss. Sure enough, next service that happened at church, the next service that happened at church, I looked across the church and 
filling that row. Jean, Carla, Sheila, Dwayne, Dwight. They knew God in a real way. And having been around this culture growing up, having seen this type of thing modeled time after time, I learned that you do not run when you face your challenges. You don't stop trusting God just because things appear real hard. You go ahead and lean into God instead of leaning away from God. You give to God your hardest questions instead of blasting God. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Biggest question. Fair to ask those questions. God can handle those questions. Now, what about other things in life? Those are morbid. Oh, my goodness, dark, deep. Ooh, calf, help us. Well, let's keep going. Might get just a little bit better. I mean, you do know that David got ahead of his giant, right? <laughs> ding, 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 we have a winner. That is bad. But he did get ahead of his giant, and that's what we want you to do today as well. Many years ago, 1771, a long while back, anybody alive then <laughs> that knows about it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Some people might look like they're that old, but they're really not. That's in next service, not this one. And, uh, but anyway, it was uh, a fellow went into a little, a little restaurant to get something to eat, and when he went into the restaurant to get him something to eat, he, uh, he sat down near the stage, and the stage, they were doing a, a drama, and the drama was using blind people to be the actors, and they were making fun of them. And he thought, how can this be? He was moved by that. Louis Huey was his name. He was like, uh, Valentin Huey was his name. And he was like, wow, this is, this is wrong. One day he had gone into a church, and there was a little kid outside with a cup, and he was wanting money given to him. And he gave him a coin, and on that coin, he saw the kid grab it and start rubbing it to find out what kind of coin it was that he gave him. What is the money of this? And then Louis Braille picked up on that. And he created the Braille system. So folks that are blind can read. You may have a friend that's blind. You may be blind yourself and you can read. Because they faced a giant too big to miss. And to put a whooping on it. What about you? What about that situation you're facing today? What about that situation that's in your life right now? You're not exactly sure what you're going to do with it or what ought to happen to it. Let's look at those keys. First, David, he shows us that he knew God personally. We need to know God personally. Do you know God personally? You say, well, how do you know that David knew God personally? Well, the Scripture talks to us a little bit about that, shows us the window of David's heart. The Scripture says that he meditated about God. He meditated thoughts on God. In Psalm chapter 19, verse 14, you begin to see there that it talks to us as David writes, may the words of my mouth and the meditation, that is the thoughts of my heart, be pleasing in your sight. May they be pleasing in your sight. Meditations of my mind, he said. So he meditated on God. He also wrote about God. He wrote Psalm 20 as a, for instance, Psalm 20 is about God. Psalm 21 is not just about God, it is to God. So some of the songs we sing on Sundays are testimonies about God. Some of them are worship songs to God. 
So sometimes we're singing a song and you see people responding differently to a song. Well, they're giving a testimony. They're jiving with it sometimes. And then you see them worshiping God in a more uh, hand-lifted way, perhaps. Well, they're giving a song of anthem and testimony to God and to others around. That's what David did. Psalms are songs. That's what they are. He sang about God in Psalm 40 and verse 3. He said, you put a new song in my mouth, new song in my heart. He talked about God in our passage here. Go to verse 26 of our passage. Who defies the armies of the living God? Verse 36. He is defied. He speaks of Goliath now. He has defied the armies of the living God. Verse 37. The Lord who delivered. Verse 45. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He is the first person in this passage to mention God. Everybody else is mentioning Goliath. Did you stop and notice that? Don't drive by that. He's the first guy to mention God. Have you brought God into the equation of your giant? You keep talking about your giant, but why don't you start talking about your God? You lift up your God and see what starts to happen. You begin to move your eyes to heaven. You begin to lift up your eyes to the hope that you have that is given to you. He says, I lift my eyes to the, look what he says, to the armies. Did you notice that? He gives plural. He's not just speaking about this army right here, all of his brothers and all of the other army members around. He's not just talking about King Saul. No, he's talking about the God of the angel armies, the invisible forces. He's talking about God who has a track record. You've been there in the past and you've helped out with other people. You're going to help me now. You're going to stand tall for me now. God, you're going to do something in my life now. This is absolutely amazing. So in the book of Acts, chapter 13 and verse 22, it sums up his life. And here's how it sums it up. David had a heart after God's heart. I can't fully unpack that, but I know that he was fully surrendered to God. And God loved that. When you connect to God, truth starts standing tall and error starts to fall. God begins to be real in your life. Lieutenant Dan Hooten was in the Pentagon working there when the 9-11 happening took place. He'd gone down to his boss's office and looked just for a minute. <laughs> when he went down there, something inside him said, you need to go back down toward your office, so he began to make his way back down toward his office, stopped for a second to say hello to somebody at a cubicle. All of a sudden, he was blown 20 feet across the room. His leg was pinned down to the ground, and it was smoky, and the walls were starting to burn. He realized it was dangerous, and he sent up a prayer. He knew God. He sent up a prayer, and he said, show me the way out. He said he got his leg unpinned. He began to move toward a space where he thought he saw light. He gets over there and realizes he's trapped again. The smoke is so bad. The walls are on fire. And he says, I don't know if I'm going to get out. Show me the way out. Eventually, he said, God did just that. He said, I saw a hand reach toward me, and they pulled me out. And he said, I came out then on the helicopter pad. He said, I was able to be found and rescued in that moment. You may be right now facing a big giant, but I want to remind you that you know God. Second, he says, know what calls you to action. Sometimes it's our own doing that gets us into trouble. Other times it is God's call that brings us to the juncture. Listen, brings us to the juncture of something that we need to attack. We need to take on. 
And here in this moment, when he's called to action, in Goliath's mind, Goliath thought, I'm the man. Can't nobody whoop me. He thought he was a big dog. He thought he was a man. He was a stature that couldn't lose. He's nine foot nine. I mean, he's got a massive neck. He's got massive muscles. He has great weight of army uh, stuff on him, 125 pounds or 150 pounds of, of army gear that's on him. It is very, very heavy. He's a big dude. So in his mind, he thinks, I can take on this army, send somebody down here, and uh, you send them down here. If they beat me, we're yours. If I beat them, you're ours. And that was the deal that was going to take place. And you feel like you're about ready to get eaten up. Ah! God is with you. Israel's mind and this army's mind. Do you realize if you study your Bible and you do a history lesson, you go back to the book of Joshua, do you know that they were fighting these guys for 300 years? Did you know that? They've been fighting these guys off and on for 300 years. And so listen to this. I think this makes sense to think this way. We say, well, it happens in my family, through my family tree. My grandpa fought this battle. My daddy fought this battle. I'm going to be fighting this battle. Ain't nothing we can do. It just happens in our family. David, all his relatives have been fighting these guys from Gad for a long time. 300 years. This is generational. You have anything handed down in your life that's generational? A curse that needs to be broken? A giant that needs to fall? Some battle you need to wage? This is, this is good stuff. In their mind, all they're filled with is fear. Max Lucado, when he was writing, said this way, rather than react to the circumstances with clenched fists, reach out to the Father with outstretched arms. He's waiting to catch you. Take hold of your anxieties, and in the process, trade your cares for calm. In David's mind, what's happening? Oh, we looked at Goliath's mind. We know. We looked at Israel's armor. We know. But what about David's mind? Well, he looks in verse 36 and says, you have insulted God. You insulted God. Verse 37, God's going to use me to defeat you. God is going to use me, little old me, not battle-tested, not a big soldier, not bulging muscles, still developing young man. He's going to use me to whip you. That's what's going to happen here. In David's mind, he said, it's a battle we can't lose. God is way bigger than that mouthy giant over there. He knows what to do with him. Bill Johnson's wife, Benny, had died. And she had lived a beautiful life for God. Bill is a pastor on the West Coast. He said this in his first message back after she passed away. He said, no situation will ever destroy you if you have hope. Your hope, listen to this, your hope will be in proportion to your surrender to God. Underline that. Your hope will be in proportion to your surrender to God. Psalm 27 and verse 1, it says this. Listen to what it says. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold or the strength of my life. It's from Him I get my strength. Of whom shall I be afraid? David was called into action. Jeremiah Lanfear lived in New York City. Uh, he had a little shop. He was making clothes and stuff like that in the 1800s, the middle 1800s, about 1850. 
And, and he, um, he had some people that talked to him because he's such a nice man, knew God, and said to him, we think you ought to come do missionary work with us and for us. And so he, he said, okay. So he decided that he would go help out uh, with their mission. And they were located, their headquarters are located down where the 9-11 memorial is right now. That's where they were located. So he, he uh, went down there and he said he would help. So down in this area and working through the, throughout the city, walking around seeing the people, he saw the people in the business district as so stressed, having no peace, no hope. And he looked at the other people walking around that would be in the other parts of the city, and he just saw the forlorn look on everybody's face. And he had an idea, small idea, didn't cost anything, didn't have to build a big building to do it. He said, I think if these people had a place they could just stop and pray, they could just stop and pray, that he would take care of that, a lot of that stress and a lot of that worry. God would answer their questions. <laughs> well, long story made a little bit shorter. He hands out a bunch of pamphlets. They didn't have email and text and all that, so he hands out a bunch of pamphlets and invites people to come over to where he's going to be at, at a particular place and says it's going to be open from 12 to 1. Just stop in and pray, and then you go. Nobody's going to preach. It's just we're going to pray and talk to God, and uh, you, you can't pray long, and you can't pray about politics. <laughs> Those are kind of his rules. And so he said, we're going to pray about you and God and what he's doing in your life. He went there first 30 minutes, nobody shows up. Then all of a sudden, here's the floor creek, one person. Pretty soon, there were six. The next week, there were 20. The next week, there were 40. Soon, they began to open up the fire hall, the police hall. They opened up businesses in different places during the lunch hour all across New York. Eventually, there were 30 million people living in the United States, went on out west. It ended up traveling on to other cities, major cities in the United States, and one fellow said when he took a trip to the Midwest, he had taken a trip of 2,000 miles. He was way west. And he came back. He said, I could stop anywhere along the way in any town and catch a revival prayer. And during that revival awakening that took place in America, one million people came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it went on over into Ireland and other parts of the world. It's absolutely amazing. It is a call to action. Is God calling you to action? And then know your strengths and weaknesses. David knew his strengths and weaknesses. He knew his strengths and weaknesses. Do you know your strengths and weaknesses? Sometimes we have a blind eye to our own weakness. Sometimes we have a blind eye to our own strength. David knew his weakness. I can't wear Saul's armor. It doesn't fit. I can't listen to my brothers. They're telling me I can't do it. In verse 28, I'm just on an ego trip. I can't listen to what Goliath says. He thinks I'm a dog. He thinks I'm just a twig. I can't do that. He knows his strength. He knew God, and he knew God could do anything. That's his strength. He is a one-strength guy, really. I know God, and God can do anything. And so he says, I know he's helped me do this to a bear, that to a lion. And those are just things we know about. There were no doubt others. But he's, he's helped him with those things. He is so stinking gifted with a sling. He says, I can do this with God. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm going to be able to do what he's asked me to do. And so he knows himself, he gives himself totally in surrender to God, and says, I believe with God, all things are possible, we can do this. And then the fourth key is this. He carried out the plan and defeated the giant. He carried it out. On his trip to the valley floor, he stops by and gets his knees wet along the, along the creek as he gets five smooth 
stones. Why'd he get five? Does Goliath have four brothers? I don't know. Somebody said he might. Laura Schlesinger says, you have a plan A, you have a plan B, you have a plan C, you have a plan D, you have a plan E, all the way through Z. There's more letters than A. I don't know why he picked up so many. Maybe he wanted to go to target practice afterwards. I don't know. <laughs> but he stayed true to his conviction all the way down there. He didn't let his knees knock him out. When he was down on his ground, he didn't just flatten out and say, we give with conviction. About the only sound you were hearing now was a whirling of his sling. Smack Goliath in the forehead, knocks him down, falls face down. David didn't have a sword, a spear, a shield. He goes up to Goliath, he grabs his sword, and you know what he does? He whacked off his head. He got ahead of his giant. Right there it was. And your scripture says that he got Goliath's weapons. He had Goliath's head, and he was able to celebrate the victory. Are you planning for the victory party? Have you ever prayed until you had the assurance God was going to take care of something in your life? You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is up to something. Oh my goodness, he's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of them. He's going to take care of it. Whatever it or them might be in your life, it's different than the person sitting by you, perhaps. While the battle was raging during the Civil War, one particular battle, Gettysburg, there was a general, General Sickles, who was leading the charge there. And the war had now ended, and Abe Lincoln and his son took a horseback ride on a Sunday afternoon and went over to see General Sickles at the hospital. And that's a painting you see there by Dave Ziegenfuss of our own congregation. Thank you, Dave, sitting back there. And uh, <laughs> Abe and his son went over to see General Sickles, and General Sickles said, you guys in Washington didn't give us much chance to win. You didn't give us any chance really to win. Now, if you study anything about Abe Lincoln, you know that he started out probably as either an atheist or an agnostic. That's what his community knew him as. And somewhere along the way, when he was cleaning out his father-in-law's library, he ran across a book that is the, uh, was Apologetics for Christianity, The Defense of the Faith. He was intrigued by it and wanted to know the author. The author lived close by, so he met him, talked with him, was intrigued. And then when he moved into Washington sometime later, he and his wife attended church. Their kids attended the midweek activities at the church, and he gave offerings to the church. He kept reading the Bible, quoted it in his everyday conversation, and quoted it in a number of his speeches. And now he's sitting here before the general, and the general said, you guys didn't give us much of a chance. Abe said, I never doubted. I never doubted for one minute that you were going to win. Never doubted for one minute. He said, I don't want you all, and there was another guy or two in the room, said, I don't want you all to tell what I'm getting ready to tell you. But he said, I went into a room by myself, and I knelt down before God. And I said, God, this nation is yours. This battle is yours. 
We don't need another battle like we had at such and such and such and such a place. We need you to win the day. And he said, I prayed, and I don't know how to explain it. Somehow the awareness came into my mind and crept in with a calm and an assurance that he was going to win the battle and that the war was going to be won. Do you have that kind of confidence in God? You can have. Abe started out not even believing and wound up being a person who helped pray a war into victory. I believe your victory can come too. I want to leave you today with verse 47 and then four questions. They're quick, so listen fast. If you're ready to listen fast, say yes. yes. All right. Verse 47 says, For the battle is the Lord's. Let's say it together. For the battle is the Lord's. Let's say it again. For the battle is the Lord. One more time. For the battle is the Lord's. That's who this battle is. David saw it not as a battle between him and Goliath. He said he defied the armies of the living God. He's taking on somebody he should not take on. This is a God battle. Okay, so here are the four questions real quick. Question number one. What are you most afraid of and why? Question two. Can you imagine going through an entire day without any worries? Question three. Anxiety decreases our understanding of the Lord. It decreases as our understanding of the Lord increases. Took me a minute to spit it out, but there it is. How can you know him more? And the fourth question lists three of your worries that you are giving to Jesus today. You believe he can deliver you from their power. I thank another for those questions. Someone has said this, when we focus on the giants, we stumble. When we focus on our God, giants tumble. Father, thank you for your help and your work in our lives. Thank you for your ministry through the Holy Spirit into each one of us. We pray, Lord, that you would calm us from fears and calm us from anxieties and worries that are overwhelming. We pray, Lord, that you would let no weapon formed against us prosper, but we would lean into your name and continue to give you every bit of ourselves. We love you, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.